Hello, I'm Mark Bomer from Roads Australia, and welcome to the latest episode in our Roadwork podcast series. Today, we're talking about opportunities and priorities to improve the sustainability and resilience of our transport infrastructure. The recent East Coast bushfires, together with other extreme weather events, has renewed the debate on resilience and sustainability in the Australian infrastructure sector. There are two fundamental questions at play. Firstly, how do we climate-proof our existing and new infrastructure? And secondly, how do we reduce the environmental impacts of building and operating that same infrastructure? The waters have been somewhat muddied by the COVID pandemic. As we emerge from this crisis, governments will be looking to supercharge the delivery of infrastructure. And this will no doubt add another layer of complexity as we try to balance long-term sustainability outcomes with the more immediate priorities of job creation and economic growth. Recently, Roads Australia hosted a webinar to explore these questions with Infrastructure Australia CEO Romilly Madhu and Infrastructure Sustainability Council of Australia CEO Ainsley Simpson. And I'm delighted to say both Romilly and Ainsley are back with us today for this podcast. Let's uh, let's get straight into it. If we cast our minds back to December, January this year, and those remarkable images of holidaymakers being evacuated off beaches by boat because the only roads or road in or out was closed. Now, notwithstanding the fact that this was an unprecedented event, could we and should we have done better in planning, designing, building and maintaining those roads to prepare for such a worst case scenario? Ainsley. Mark, one of the benefits relating to planning and designing infrastructure in response to climate change is improved resilience. The time is now to address climate change and disaster resilience in all stages of the life cycle. Some states and territories have developed good strategies, largely in response to catastrophic shocks. Others are in development for what might happen. All need sound plans which make action practical and possible. Regarding planning and prediction, climate change modelling can be used to develop a national set of science-based scenarios that importantly address regional variability. This would be a great support in decision-making for all new as well as existing infrastructure assets. From Infrastructure Australia's side, our 2019 infrastructure audit clearly identified that our climate is changing. And, you know, there are many lessons learnt from what we have been experiencing over the past period of time. But we all agree it is good practice to ensure we are recognising climate risk and taking steps to address it, and it should be incorporated into current risk management. And given the longevity of infrastructure such as roads and rail and telecommunication, it is vital that climate risk is assessed as, as early as possible and incorporated into every planning stage. So I think, you know, we recognise that making our infrastructure networks efficient and resilient to environmental impacts has never been more important. Yes, indeed. Look, just following on from that question, is the infrastructure sector broadly equipped with the knowledge and skills to manage this risk and plan for greater resilience? And if not, how do we get it there? I'll start because I know Ainsley has some good views on this. Coming from 17 years in property and construction, my observation of infrastructure sector is that it's on a journey like many others, but the other sectors are further ahead than infrastructure. Property and construction would be considered a mature sector in dealing with sustainability and resilience, and their response has been more than 20 years in the making. 
What's important for infrastructure is that we need to have a roadmap. We all need to agree on what we need to focus on. We need to collaborate and we need to be clear on what's required, uh, what are the metrics, what are the frameworks, what are the scenarios, and they all, we all should be working on them together. Ainsley, do you have a comment to add to that one? Thinking back to the resilience question, um, Mark, if, if I recall correctly, uh, at last week's webinar, there were around 60% of our attendees that indicated that there are pockets of excellence, but that there's no broad-based consistency. There are extensive sets of international general resources available, but for major infrastructure in Australia, most have the opportunity to follow the standard set by ISCA in the IS rating scheme, but an agreed list of likely shocks and stresses, a set of principles and a range of practical actions mapped against a maturity model or roadmap, as Romilly's suggesting, would be hugely beneficial for our industry. In time, this could become even more specific to certain infrastructure sectors. Thanks, Ainsley. Let's turn to the work of your agency, Romilly. So how are the impacts of extreme climate-related events reflected in the way we're currently assessing projects for the Australian Infrastructure Priority List? And what lessons and changes will you take forward from these recent events into the next Australian Infrastructure Plan? In 2018, Infrastructure Australia, in updating their biannual review of the assessment framework, included impacts of climate change. That allowed proponents, when they were developing their business cases, to have a framework to use when it came to considering the impacts of climate change into their business cases. Unfortunately, it's not an area that has been widely used in the years following that. Interestingly enough, every two years we have to do a, a cost-benefit analysis review, which we've done and we released it in early 2020. And that clearly said there is an opportunity to enhance the guidance around designing and planning infrastructure in response to the impacts of climate change. And that additionally, that we should also, as IA, provide guidance around measuring the resilience of infrastructure. We are taking that seriously. We are currently undertaking a review of our assessment framework and that review will look at sustainability, climate change scenario assessments and resilience. So the sector will see in the coming months a change to our assessment framework and will include guidance on those specific areas. When it comes to the infrastructure priority list, for the infrastructure priority list, we rely on our assessment framework to guide the projects that are on it. But I think what's exciting about this year's priority list is before the bushfires really reached its level on New Year's Eve, followed by an East Coast low and now a pandemic, Infrastructure Australia had already identified a number of resilience-type projects that could be considered, and we released those in the 2020 infrastructure priority list, but we'd been doing work on that in late 2019. And that includes water security, coastal inundation, road maintenance, regional connectivity, um, waste and recycling, and energy efficiency as well. So, so Infrastructure Australia has very much in its program of works a resilience frame of mind of the pivot that the sector should take. Um, that will be picked up in our 2021 infrastructure plan. The audit identified 180 challenges and opportunity, and the importance of the plan is that we respond to that. What does the action look like? What are the principles and protocols that should be put in place? What are the regulatory changes and reforms that we should be thinking about? And there'll be a strong focus in the plan on environment and resilience and climate risk. Romney, let me ask you about collaboration, because that's obviously 
extremely important at, at, at all levels. Your organisation is currently working with Infrastructure New South Wales on a number of research projects related to resilience. With every state now having its own independent infrastructure advisory body, how important is collaboration between your agencies? And is there a commonality of thinking around sustainability and resilience issues? Excitingly, there's a willingness by all the jurisdictions to work together and collaborate. And last year, we strengthened the infrastructure bodies network, and it now includes every jurisdiction in Australia, because only the states have infrastructure bodies, but the network includes ACT and Northern Territory. And we also include uh, New Zealand because they established their own infrastructure body last year. And further, we include the federal government department because infrastructure spending and funding comes from the infrastructure department. What's exciting about that collaboration is that we actually have a program of work. And on that program of work, not only does it include harmonisation of our assessment frameworks, but it also includes sustainability and resilience. And so we aren't just working with Infrastructure New South Wales, we're also working with all the infrastructure bodies, like Infrastructure Victoria, on sustainability and resilience to ensure that we have a like-minded consensus approach. Ainsley, do you have a comment on that? So to echo that, taking a leadership position is not an exclusive right only required at the earliest stages. What we are seeing is that the most progressive proponents are leveraging the power of procurement to make it clear to their supply chains that sustainable outcomes are essential and expected. And they're making that possible by adopting standards that drive best practice, like the IS rating scheme. Our industry is more engaged than ever about driving better outcomes and the number of opportunities available for us to collaborate and participate. So, Romley, you're currently working with CSIRO on climate and resilience issues. Can you tell us a little bit about this work, what it's likely to deliver and when? Sure. So the CSIRO are working really closely with an expert advisory panel, which I'm a member of, and it's been tasked to identify and recommend practical measures to build climate and disaster resilience in a report to be delivered to the Prime Minister, Premiers and Chief Ministers in June 2020. And this is really taking a sectorial approach. And so the area, obviously, that my expertise is focusing on is property and infrastructure. And some of the areas to be considered in the report specific to our sector include how we integrate climate and disaster resilience considerations into land use and infrastructure planning, zoning and development approvals, construction, environmental planning and agricultural practices. So it really is a report that will be going to COAG. I can't provide much more feedback than that. But what I think is important to note is that the fact that it's been organised, that the advisory panel um, is working closely with CSIRO on this and that it will be shared with COAG. How do you foresee the growing use of new technologies and operating models such as rideshare impacting on the transport sector's environmental performance, particularly in relation to emissions? And, and how do you factor these considerations into the project assessment process? Coming back to your last part of that question about how do we take this into the project uh, assessment process, with the review that we are currently undertaking of the assessment framework, the new technologies and, as I've mentioned, sustainability and climate risk will be incorporated into the updated version of our assessment framework. It currently is picked up under impacts of climate change, but they will be picked up, as, as, as I mentioned. Wow. I think what's really interesting about the pandemic 
and how we've all changed and changed incredibly quickly is that, you know, even before COVID-19, the digital economy was changing the way that we worked, consumed and, and did business. What has come out of the pandemic is it's forced us to change. And we can all see examples around the world of the fact that the air is cleaner. There's been a, re there's been a reduction in air pollution. There's been an increase in the use of technology and the innovation that is coming around about digitisation of our economy. So that change is definitely happening and we have to take that into account. But at the same time, when you think about electric vehicles, for instance, it's also important that we have a plan because electric vehicles still rely on electricity. So we need to ensure that we're taking a sustainability lens to the networks that are supporting growth in electric vehicles. We know electric vehicles demand is coming, but we also have to balance that to make sure that we ensure that there's sustainable electricity supporting that. Following on from what Romilly said, uh, ISCA, together with Climate Works and ASBEC, issued our issues paper in March, Reshaping Infrastructure for a Net Zero Emissions Future. That paper acknowledges across Australia, all states and territories have targets and aspirations which infrastructure will contribute to and will need to respond to. Importantly, it acknowledges that the level of current investment means that assets will be operating well beyond 2050. Our findings reveal that 70% of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions are enabled by infrastructure. 6% is contributed by embodied emissions in the materials and construction. 9% is contributed through operations. And the remaining 55 is from activities enabled by infrastructure assets. So the greatest opportunity for us to start creating change is at the earliest possible time in the planning stage. Thanks, Ainsley. Now, last week in our webinar, there was a, an interesting question that someone put to you both, and I'd love to get your uh, answers on it again for this podcast. Is there a fundamental trade-off between sustainability and resilience? For example, how do we reconcile maintenance of road corridors to keep vegetation at a safe distance from pavements with the resulting environmental damage that comes from taking out that flora? Well, in this example, I think it's a matter of language. But historically, there's been the narrative that economy and the environment are opposing forces. Our evidence-based research looking at the return on investment of sustainable infrastructure shows that this is absolutely not the case. The data shows that for maximum benefits realisation, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. By seeking synergies, not trade-offs, better outcomes can be delivered all round. And with regard to the tension between sustainability and resilience, it's important to again stress that resilience is a subset of sound sustainable practice. It is not possible to achieve resilience in isolation of governance, environmental, social and economic outcomes. Infrastructure Australia completely agree with Ainsley's comments. Infrastructure Australia agrees that they're both important and that resilience sits within the sustainability framework. And because everything is interconnected and infrastructure is underpinned by so many trends and forces, because that is what affects how, where and the way we live, that they can't be trade-offs. They, they all have to be considered as a whole. 
Okay, Ainsley, in our webinar last week, you talked about the importance of projects being shovel-worthy as opposed to shovel-ready in the context of balancing social, environmental and economic objectives. Coming out of this COVID crisis, what are the opportunities to further embed sustainability and resilience in project scopes? Or are we likely to see sustainability play second or even third fiddle as governments look to rush infrastructure projects into the market to drive job creation and economic growth? With infrastructure being enduring assets, our COVID recovery will be the foundation for intergenerational demise or prosperity. Long-term benefits need to be the policy directive. So all infrastructure investment creates vibrant economy and society. This will mean more resilient, inclusive infrastructure that course corrects our emissions trajectory. The short-term impacts of investment that achieves best practice sustainability performance are that they create employment, they stimulate local economies, they develop skills and capacity, and they stimulate innovation across the supply chain. This kind of directive will enable transparent communication of the outcomes for business, for communities, the workforce, and the environment. Thanks, Ainsley. I think that's a really positive note to conclude our discussion today. So I want to thank you and Romilly for joining me. And as we work through uh, the impacts of COVID-19, collaboration really is the word on everyone's lips. And if we can harness that same spirit of collaboration to further embed resilience and sustainability in transport, infrastructure, planning, assessment, delivery, and whole-of-life operation, then perhaps there is indeed a silver lining to this crisis. So thanks again for joining me. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, make sure you like it and share it. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Life.